the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business Week here on Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. In a few minutes, you'll hear from Barry Halloran of the Irish Times on the latest in the Ryanair pilot strike in Ireland. Has Michael O'Leary won the PR battle this week? Or do the pilots really have Ryanair over a barrel? In the second half of the show, you'll hear about the NTMA's concerns about our sky-high national debt and why we should sell down our remaining shares in AIB, Bank of Ireland and Permanent TSB. Investec analyst Owen Callan and Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times will tease out these issues with me. OK, but we're going to begin the week, as always, with a roundup of the main stories uh, with Peter Hamilton. Peter, you're welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Uh, Peter, we're going to start with Pascal Donoghue and some good news for middle-income earners. That's right. He said at an ESRI conference that uh, he was committed to lowering the tax burden for middle-income earners, but he warned that it would be done on a gradual basis. He's very conscious about doing it quickly and he says that's inappropriate and runs the risk of overheating the economy. Uh, now, mind you, he didn't mind, well, uh, it wasn't him, but his predecessors didn't mind jacking up the taxes rather quickly uh, during uh, post the crash and uh, during the austerity years, but they're, uh, they're unwinding them um, somewhat more slowly. Yeah, it, it seems to be a relatively prudent move, though, to unwind them a bit more slowly. Counter-cyclical investment would dictate that this isn't a terrible idea and that he should mm. uh, wait until the, the economy turns again to to reduce taxes. Now should be the time for investment, of course, they're not really sticking to the counter-cyclical book as much as they should be, perhaps, and, and not investing as the economy as much as they should be. But mm. uh, in any event, at that conference, Seamus Coffey uh, said that there was little evidence of overheating. So there was, I suppose, a few mixed messages from that conference. And separately then, uh, also yesterday on housing, Mario Draghi uh, linked House Prizes in the Republic to uh, search for yield by international investors. And he said that house prices were overstretched and vulnerable to repricing. So while the middle-income earners may pay a, a slightly lesser tax burden, it's not getting any easier to get on the housing ladder. Yeah, good man, Mario. Okay. Now, on the in, in terms of media, um, some good news for the Irish Times this week. Uh, we've completed the acquisition of the landmark media group in Cork. That's right. The former, formerly owned by the Crosbys. Uh, and that's the owner of the Irish Examiner newspaper, as well as uh, a raft of regional titles and some radio assets. Uh, the The... The, the, the agreement was signed in December, the 5th of December, so it's taken a while for it to come to fruition, what with the CCBC. Well, they had to wait for various approvals. Yeah, the CCBC they? examining it uh, and subsequently the Minister for Communications. The latest circulation figures that we have, which are for the second figure, or the second half of last year, showed that the Irish Times had a combined average daily sales of around €78,000. That's while, print and e-paper. That's print and e-paper. And print circulation then had dipped again to around 61000 mm. And compare that then to the examiner, which had print circulation of just over 27,500. So uh, I suppose different in their circulation, but the the uh, the transaction was welcomed by outside observers and Seamus Dooley, the Irish uh, Secretary of the National Union of Journalists. Uh, he welcomed, welcomed the deal, yeah. A lot of work to be done. I mean, obviously the, the two uh, entities are going to come together as part of a larger group now and a lot of work to be done mm. in terms of uh, structures and so forth. Independent news and media, meanwhile, uh, back in court. Yeah, slightly less positive. Uh, they're back in court. They were back in court yesterday, uh, Tuesday, uh, and this concerns the the case uh, 
an application by the Office of the Director of Corporate Enforcement uh, to appoint inspectors to investigate a range of concerns over the conduct of INM's affairs. And they were in court yesterday and the ODC argued that there was a culture of deference to the major shareholder, Dennis O'Brien. Uh, INM in court today, they completely rejected that. Uh, and they also said there was no basis that for, for saying that the former chairman, Leslie Buckley, appeared to have untrammeled influence uh, in the company. So this, this case and this hearing uh, continues. Right, okay. Now, a little later on, we're going to be talking to Barry Halloran uh, about disruption to Ryanair passengers as a result of a strike by certain Irish pilots. Uh, but uh, Irish Continental Group, which operates Irish ferries, uh, is having its own difficulties in that regard. That's right. This is fast becoming the summer from hell for ICG. They, uh, they after difficulties earlier in the summer with the WB8s, and I'll come back to those in a moment, they this week warned that there'd be further disruption to passengers as a result of its Ulysses vessel remaining out of action. That'll be out of action for up to two more weeks. That's uh, on the Dublin-Hollyhead route. Dublin-Hollyhead route. And what happened there was that vessel entered dry dock at the end of June. It was supposed to be out by the 4th of July, but problems with the propeller uh, kept it in. Uh, now, ICG were keen to flag this is the first issue since that ship was deployed on the route, uh, and that was in 2001. Just on the WB, uh, WB8's cancellations, they've discommoded about 20,000 passengers and what happened there was the delivery of that ship was delayed uh, due to late receipt of parts by the, the German the German uh, shipbuilder. While Ulysses, is, the delay to Ulysses is likely to cost around 2 million a week, analysts uh, suggesting WB8's issues will cost around 7 million euro. So, it is a, undoubtedly a tough time for ICG that have seen their shares fall uh, as a result of these issues, as well as the increasing fuel costs they have to deal with and the, the breaks of troubles coming down the line. And very discommoding, obviously, for passengers. Indeed, yeah, yeah, very discommoding for passengers, uh, particularly on that WB8 route uh, to France. OK, Peter, we'll leave it there for, that, uh, for this week. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. OK. Now to Ryanair. On Thursday, about 100 directly employed Ryanair pilots in Ireland will strike and this will disrupt up to 30 Ryanair flights on the day and impact about 5,000 passengers. The airline and pilots have been meeting today in talks on the dispute. Uh, Barry Halloran of the Irish Times has been following every twist and turn of this long-running saga and I'm delighted to say he's joining me in studio. Now Barry, uh, Thursday is D-Day for Ryanair in terms of this pilot strike in Ireland. It'll be the first uh, strike by uh, Irish-based Ryanair pilots uh, in the history of the airline um, and it's all part of their move towards gaining recognition uh, as trade union recognition with the company and up to 30 flights from the Republic to Britain are going to be hit. It's affecting about uh, 5,000 passengers. And it could have been worse, I guess, from a, a Ryanair uh, point of view. But I'm just wondering whether the pilots, who's in the box seat here, you know, have have Ryanair won this PR battle or is it the pilots? Because we were led to believe that the pilots had Ryanair over a battle, over a barrel. And yet, uh, here we are in a situation where only 30 flights have been affected. They're largely the ones um, to Stansted in the UK. Uh, and people's holiday arrangements to continental Europe don't seem to have been impacted and something like 250 pilots are going to be operating flights in and out of Ireland for Ryanair on Thursday. Yeah, that all appears to be the case as as things stand. Now, that's assuming nothing else goes wrong. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely the in the build-up to this, the, the, the passengers who were complaining were all saying, you know, this is our family holiday, I'm going to a stag party, even a wedding, I think, in one case. Um and it now appears that none of them will be affected. Mm. I mean, it's 30 out of 290 flights. It's yeah. 
obviously, if you're on one of those 30 flights, it's a, it's a pain in the neck. You're, you're going to be affected. But nonetheless, it's, uh, it's only roughly, what, 10, 11% of, of all the flights? Yeah, it's, it's, it's one in nine, so that's 11%. And the the number of passengers is slightly north of of five thousand. Um, so what's going on here? I mean, what what what's at what's at play? Why? How is it developed that a hundred directly employed Ryanair pilots are striking, but some two hundred and fifty who kind of have uh, arrangements with agencies or uh, whatever other entities um, are continuing to fly with Ryanair? Why are those two hundred and fifty so happy with their terms and conditions with Ryanair that they're prepared to fly in a day when? the directly employed guys are out in the roundabout striking? Nobody appears to know this. The, 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 the point is that the, the, the union has recruited, as a first stage anyway, all those who are directly employed. Though they tend to be the people who are there the longest. And I suspect that in many cases, they may already have been members of the Irish Airline Pilots Association before they joined Ryanair and maintained their membership of that organisation subsequent to, to taking up employment with Ryanair, despite the fact that the, the company wouldn't deal with unions. The, the, Ryanair has always said it doesn't stop people joining unions. It, in the old days, it, it merely said, we don't deal with them. We don't we stop them joining them. With them. It's up yep. to you if you join them or not. Um, so I, I think in, in a lot of cases, that's, that's what's happened, is that these people are already in. Um, they were already in the union before they joined Ryanair. They may have recruited some of the others who became directly employed. Um, all, they would all be longer serving, more experienced pilots. In fact, my understanding is that, that most, if not all, of those um, in the union are captains. Um, which means, by the way, that you know, you, they, they, these, are very senior, these are very senior people and you can't fly a plane without a captain. Um, but as for the rest, um, they're, a, they're a mix, I think, of contract and agency people. It may well be that many of them aren't Irish and therefore weren't, you know, weren't, you know, weren't members of the, the Irish Airline Pilots Association when they, they moved to, to Dublin to fly for Ryanair or when they moved to Cork to, to, to fly for Ryanair out of their bases there. So I, I think that's where it boils down, what it boils down to. And I think that the issue for the union is um, how it goes about recruiting um, those who are outside its fold at the moment, because it seems pretty clear that even though you can cause some disruption to Ryanair with the level of membership that you now have, um, it doesn't seem that you can actually derail its operations or seriously dent its operations in the way that you would like. And I think that the union is maybe privately conceding that Ryanair has won the PR battle on this. Yeah. So um, Michael O'Reilly has played his cards well. I mean. This uh, this emerged late last year as an issue. You know this whole uh, matter of union recognition, and Ryanair seemed to give in and say, "Yes, we're going to recognise unions." And here we are, seven months on, and, and they still haven't agreed to deal with uh, IALPA or Forza. Uh, why is that? Um, they have agreed some deals. They've agreed deals with big in, in two big markets, Italy and um, Britain. With IALPA and Forza, I mean, I think that. You know, because there's history, there's long history between Ryanair and IALPA. Um, both have kind of regarded each other as a foe um, for a long time. I think there is extra rancor there, first of all. I think that's, and that is, there is definitely an element of that in the background of all this. There's an element of mistrust on both sides. Um, and I think that there has been, I think it's been quite a struggle to get past that. I know that in terms of the, the nitty gritty of what happened, 
they um, the two sides met in late December, just days before Christmas, in a hotel close to Dublin Airport. And, and I understand they met again early in the new year. Since then, they have communicated with each other in writing. Now, a lot of the wrangling in, in, the, those, in that correspondence has been over a meeting venue. Um, the union has always maintained that it wants to meet Ryanair at a neutral venue, um, whereas Ryanair is saying, hang on, we want to meet you in our head offices in Airside because these are Ryanair people and that's where we meet our people. And there, th- mm. this gap has between the two sides mm. has persisted for months. It, all, it became a sticking point um, in the, the last few days when they were trying to arrange a meeting to... Um, to see if anything could be done to resolve the strike. And they eventually agreed in a neutral venue in Dublin Airport in yes. Terminal 1. And those discussions are going on as we speak. They've been going on for a number of hours. No white smoke as yet. Uh, we'll have to wait and see what comes out of them. But what do the pilots do from here? I mean, presumably they're going to have to review their strategy. And I'm just wondering for passengers who booked on flights uh, with Ryanair out of Ireland um, for the coming weeks, uh, the rest of July and August, should they be concerned that they might be impacted? I think if you're a if you're a passenger, you need to be vigilant. Yeah, um, I think that, that there is still the there is still the capacity for some level of disruption, um, and this this ballot for strike, this ballot for strike action, um, the it's clear. In fact, we know from a from a letter written by IALPA that um, they may well they, they may well be planning further strikes down the road. There are also cabin crew strikes in various markets in Europe later this month. The British Airline Pilots Association has submitted a pay claim. So there are, you know, there are potential flashpoints and there's potential for a lot of of industrial relations bushfires to break out across Europe um, at the moment. Um, In terms of the pilots, I mean, I think that the the answer in a lot of ways is is simple. They actually need to recruit um, those who are not in or, or a proportion of those who are not in. But then you are down to the issue, and this is an internal issue really amongst the pilots themselves, as to whether those who are on contracts think that, well, this is all just about shoring up the guys who are already directly employed. And it it, it boils down to whether the two sides, mm. the two elements of the pilots group actually feel that they have common cause and common cause enough to join a single organisation to campaign for all these um, employment rights. And do we have any sense on whether this uncertainty over whether flights will will not take off if it's having any impact on forward bookings for Ryanair? I'm sorry, the... The, the uncertainty around the, industrial relations actions that might uh, happen in Ireland or around Europe, is it having any impact on Ryanair's it, bookings going forward? Yeah, sorry, I misunderstood you slightly. Um, at this stage, we don't have a picture of that. I think that's that's a question that we'll be kind of... A, that, that we'll be putting to the company as as you look at the fallout from this. But I would say, given the more or less minimal impact that this is having this week, that it may not necessarily be putting people off. Okay. All right. We'll leave it there. Barry Halloran, thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll talk to Cliff Taylor and Owen Callan about the NTMA's suggestion that the state should sell its shares in the domestic banks and pay down our national debt. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. 
Now, welcome back to this Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes, and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Now, on Monday, Conor Kelly, Chief Executive of the National Treasury Management Agency, used the launch of its annual report to sound some warning bells about Ireland's high level of national debt. He suggested that the party might be over and that the state should look at selling down its holdings in AIB, Bank of Ireland and Permanent TSB to pay out some of our debt, to pay down some of our debt and to run a budget surplus. Joining me in studio to discuss this strategy are Investec analyst Owen Callan and Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. Cliff, we might start with you. You've been writing a column in the Irish Times today in which you're teasing out um, those issues. What do you think was behind Conor O'Kelly's uh, statement that we should be looking to sell down our bank shares and we should be looking to reduce our national debt. Yeah, interesting, I guess. Uh, the NTMA usually keep their powder dry in terms of policy matters. It is a state agency. I mean, they manage the national debt on behalf of the Department of uh, Finance. So w- was he a sure. little cheeky? Well, maybe not cheeky. Look, he's, he's every right to, to give his opinion, I guess. And, he, you know, he did make the point that, look, this is the, this is a government decision. This is a decision for the Minister for Finance. But I guess the background, as he sketched it out, is that it's been an extraordinarily good few years for the NTMA uh, because conditions in the market have been really favourable for them. Interest rates, as we all know, have been on the floor. Mm. The ECB have been big buyers of Irish government bonds. And for that reason, the NTMA has been able to raise a lot of new money very cheaply. Uh, For example, the money it's raised, the long-term money it's raised this year, over $11 The average interest rate on that is just 1%. So, like yeah. in historical so terms, what would we have been paying? Let's say around the time of the crash, what kind of levels would we have been? Paying? Oh well, we were up. We were up around. We were in well in double figures during the crash. We weren't raising any money then, but the the rate on the market, if you like, had gone into double figures, which is why we mm. slumped into the uh, slumped into the bailout. But historically, you know, typically four or five percent might have been the interest rate we paid on our debt. So what? the last few years have allowed the NTMA to do is to raise money very cheaply. And because that's gone on now for a few years, the average cost of our whole debt has fallen pretty significantly. They've to, been able to, to refinance some of the more expensive re- debt as exactly. well, haven't they? They've been able to do deals in the IMF debt, some of the bilateral debt that we took on during the bailout. Uh, the EU money is paid off. So overall, we're, we're in a good position. And I guess what he was looking forward to was the risk that these really favourable conditions are going to come to an end now. Uh, interest rates are going to start going up. The ECB programme is of bond buying is coming to an end. At, uh, What's the import of that, Cliff? It, it means it's going to cost more for the state to raise debt at some stage. Now, conditions are still very favourable at the moment. Uh, but the ECB has talked about uh, ending its bond buying programme. Uh, we ex- By the end of this year, we expect interest rates to go up maybe by the autumn of next year, uh, assuming the European economy does continue to recover and there are some uncertainties there. But overall, the markets are going to start anticipating an increase in, in interest rates. The cost to state of raising debt is going to rise. We've seen it happen in America where 10-year American interest rates are now around 3%. Uh, so, you know, we've been living in a in a period, in an extraordinary period through history that is going to come to an end. And his point was we should be looking at actually reducing our national debt, the cash value of our national debt now. Uh, while conditions are really good. So uh, a gross debt of €219 billion, Euro. it's about 68% uh, debt to GDP raised. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we've come down from uh, a really kind of flashing red level of debt, you know, over 120% of GDP during the crisis when, when we were in real difficulties uh, to more manageable levels. The headline figures show we're in a really strong position with debt to GDP of 68%. Mm. But as Conor Kelly points out, the Irish GDP figures have been really 
messed up by multinational activity the famous leprechaun economics episode mm. in 2015 and we really can't take that as a good guide so if you look at some other statistics for example uh, the rate of debt to GNI star which is the new uh, figure brought forward by the CSO to try and net out the multinational activity that's it, our ratio is 100% and if you look at some other figures like the ratio of debt to government revenue or the ratio of debt interest mm. to, to tax revenue they, they all show that our debt burden is still high the only two ways to reduce that, sell sell assets like the state holdings in the banks or run a budget surplus. Uh, and one of the notable factors over the last few years, and I think this may be the thing that, one of the things that prompted Conor O'Kay to speak is that the, the rate of improvement in the exchequer finances has slowed fairly dramatically. We've been kind of moving along with, with very low borrowing levels, but we haven't actually moved into surplus. Spare cash has gone to increase spending. Uh, and, and to give some tax, tax cuts, cuts as well. Mm-hmm. And Conor O'Kelly's point is, look, and a number of other economists who made this point too, this is the time to be moving into budget surplus to give ourselves some leeway when the economy starts to turn down. Yeah. Uh, on Callum, what's the Investec view on this? Would you agree with Conor O'Kelly's analysis? Um, I, I, I think, uh, I suppose, that the, the first thing that Conor O'Kelly is maybe trying to get through is that you can't time these things perfectly. You can't wait forever and wait for the perfect conditions. Uh, and I suppose maybe some people would have said, oh, well, AIB was up at you know five euros seventy five for the share price uh, you know uh, before Christmas and it's back down around you know four euros eighty now. Should we wait for it to get back to five seventy five or something? And you can't really do that you know, particularly when in the case of AIB, uh, the government's going to be coming back to the market on multiple occasions uh, over the next few years, maybe five or, or, or even seven years. Given that the seventy one percent that they still hold, given the kind of the twelve billion market cap which AIB is, it's a large amount for the market to digest. If so, how much if they were to go back to market uh, with some AIB shares this year, realistically? how much could they drip feed into the market in percentage terms? Sure. Well, using maybe some of the comparable uh, situations that, that, that Europe has seen in, previous, in, in the last few years, in particular, AB and AMRO uh, in, in, in the Netherlands, uh, which was rescued by the stations, and they have dripped uh, large chunks of that back into the market. They have come back. They did the same as AB. They came back with a large stake at first, and then they came back in small stakes, about 7% each time. So you'd be looking at probably something like a billion euros, maybe. Uh, so if you do seven, seven at a time, that's, sort of, that's 10 tranches. Uh, we own 71%. You know, roughly speaking, we're talking about 10 tranches. Exactly. We could be talking uh, a long number of years. Yeah, well, if you, if you did, let's say, you know, one or two a year, that sort of timeline, exactly, it's going to take at least five years uh, to get through that. So this is a, a long-term uh, process, and therefore, there's no point trying to time it perfectly because the market itself uh, will, you know, obviously have swings and roundabouts. And as we've seen this year, there's been a lot of volatility. Uh, everything seemed great at the start of the year. Uh, markets are very much buoyant and, and riding on a high, and, and they've come off, uh, particularly the banking sector, quite a bit in recent months, given the Brexit risks, given the the Trump concerns, uh, uh, and given maybe uh, some concerns of if the ECB is to raise rates. No, it wouldn't happen. But let's say the government uh, was to sell all of the bank shares that it owns this year. How much would they get? Uh, they have a stake of about €9 billion Euros, uh, in AIB. In Bank of Ireland, it's just a little bit over a uh, billion euros. Uh, and in permanent TSB, it's about six or €700 million Euros at the moment, depending where the share price is today. So uh, all told, they have probably just under uh, €10 billion, euros, or just under €11 billion, euros, rather, uh, in, in total equity left in the banks. Uh, it's about 50% of the, of the total on a kind of weighted basis, uh, taking the 70% or so they own in AIB and PTSB and the 14% they own in Bank of Ireland. So um, it, it's a fairly sizable amount. Uh, and I think probably Conor Kelly's got one eye on the funding requirements that he has coming forward uh, in 2019 and 2020. 
2020 in particular when some very large bond uh, and IMF redemptions uh, come due or bilateral facility redemptions come due. There's about 35 billion euros in refinancing required in those two years, which is much, much larger uh, than, than in the previous years. Usually it's about 10 million per year, maybe a little bit less, in fact, uh, that we've seen in recent years, but it's going to be 35 billion over those two years combined, mm. as well as about 11 billion this year. So he has a fairly sizable requirement. Uh, it would. He obviously has a good bit of cash on hand. The NTMA has always yeah, been about very, 20 billion, isn't it? Yeah, they've always been very, very cautious. And obviously, you never know, we might get that Apple money uh, at some stage in the next well, few years as well. Billion. Yeah, which would certainly help and with counting. that. But assuming that that doesn't happen, then he does have a, a large requirement. And having a bit more cash coming in from other um, uh, mechanisms like the sale of the bank stakes would obviously help uh, from that perspective. It would uh, limit the amount that they'd have to get from the market and therefore it would probably uh, relax a little bit the pressure that might happen in terms of upward pressure on yields, uh, which could occur over the next couple of years as the NTMA goes to the market to try and fund that. Now, Conor Kelly's view is that when you take uh, all of the factors that uh, Cliff mentioned earlier into account, the party might be over. I think he suggested uh, if, it, if we're working on a 12-hour cycle, we're, we're probably at 11 o'clock. Um, equity markets have never been so strong uh, and, uh, you know, the party might be over. So what's what's the Investec view? Would you share that uh, um, the analysis? I don't know if the party's over. I still think the economic fundamentals are pretty strong in Europe. Uh, while the ECB will be raising rates in the future, it'll still be a fairly slow process. We're not expecting the first rate hike probably to the middle or even the third quarter of next year. We're not going to have 4 or 5% rates anytime in the next five years. It'll be kind of a very slow process of getting to 2 or 3% even. Um, so... The time is still on the Irish government side uh, from that perspective, but certainly we're, as, as you explained earlier on, we've had interest rate conditions which are unlikely to be repeated anytime soon in terms of the negative rates and the decade-long experience. Up, they, 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 that, that is the only trajectory. It's really just the pace uh, that they go there and, and the ultimate end point. And obviously we have to be mindful that the economic cycle, you know, for all this talk about Europe being a problem, you know, a problem economy, et cetera, for the last few years, it has been, you know, in, in growth for the last five or six years. Uh, we're well past the crisis stage while there has been political issues. You know, the economy has been growing. The ECB obviously has been supporting that through QE and through low rates. Uh, and there has been fiscal and economic reforms in many countries across Europe. So it is in a much better place. And eventually that cycle will have to turn down. There will be a cyclical recession. It won't be the end of the world or anything like that, but there will be a downturn. Equity markets will take a hit on that. So what do you um, think that might be? I think it's still probably got another 18 months to two years in Europe. In the States, a lot of people do feel that we could be kind of coming to that last 12 months. We could be really reaching the peak of that. And that's why the Fed is probably a little bit keen to get rates up, if no other reason, so they can bring them back down uh, afterwards. It's yeah. kind of a, it's, 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 it's a perverse way of looking at it, but that's, a, that's how central banks often look at things. Uh, but in Europe, we still probably have a few more years, but we're probably reaching a sort of plateau to, to an extent. We've had very strong growth in, in the Europe in relative terms in the last you know, 12 or 18 months. Uh, obviously, in Ireland, we know we've had a very good period uh, since 2012. That can't continue forever. Um, so probably in 2020, we'll be looking at some sort of, you know, at least uh, moderation uh, in growth and, and, and the outlook there. So ahead of that, it would make sense for the uh, Irish government to be looking at at least de-risking uh, their stakes in, 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 the, in, the, in the banking sector uh, in whatever means they feel is appropriate yeah. for that. Cliff, the bank shares are only one uh, set of assets that the government holds. I mean, there are many other state assets that the government holds, which they could sell and I think will be attractive to the market. I mean, for example, ESB. Uh, Dublin Airport uh, Authority, which is Dublin and Cork Airports, mm -hmm. um, Dublin Port. I, I mean, these are both going gangbusters at, at the minute and they're big cash generating entities and they surely will be uh, of interest to private investors. I'm sure they would. I guess one of the issues is that they're also key to national infrastructure and national infrastructure planning. Well, Dublin Airport, 
But in private can hands, what difference would it make? Well, but if, if, if it's in government hands, then the government can, can plan what's, what happens. It can plan the new runway. It can, pl- it can have some influence on charges, etc. Uh, if it's in private hands, you're looking at the, a bigger regulatory role. Uh, and I think we've seen, you know, how that can be that can be tricky to to operate in practice. You know, even in sectors like electricity. Uh, well, it's a regulator who sets the, uh, charges. At absolutely, the absolutely. But I think if if it if it were to move into private hands, there'd be a greater demand for you know for profitability. And surely, uh, a private operator, balancing. if there's money to be made, they would build a new runway. True, uh, but there's also a public a public interest in buying in building a new runway. You know, a wider national interest, if you like. And I think we've seen in areas like. Broadband, for example, uh, how it can be difficult to marry those, uh, the national goal and the private profit motive together, if you like. So the government has tried to intervene to get private sector to roll out broadband to areas where it mightn't go to anyway. Uh, I just I just don't see a, I guess I don't see a political, I don't see a political interest in doing that. Uh, I don't see a political win behind doing that, really. Uh, I think we're probably in an era where there's pressure on the government to spend a bit more and become a bit more involved in solving problems rather than offloading things, whether that's the right answer or not. Well, if Owen's right about his analysis, I mean, we're looking at sort of the next 12 to 18 months, we could have some Mm. sort of a a financial uh, hit to the global economy, one that could have a a serious impact for Ireland, given that we're a a small and open economy. And this is rotten bad luck for Pascal Donoghue as Minister for Finance, given that we've only... Uh, just really turned the corner and we're heading back to near full employment and sure. he, he's you know he, he's able to give out a few goodies uh, after a number of years uh, of austerity sure. and now he's got all of these uh, headwinds potentially facing, might, he, and he's got to spend 115 billion on new infrastructure sure he might get the, he might get the next election out of the way though before uh, before the downturn houses and this new well, well this is the thing I think um, we're in a period when we've you know we've never had it so good in terms of the public finances in terms of the wind behind us and I think part of what uh, Part of what Conor O'Kelly is saying and part of what needs to happen is we need to look at where we're going over the next five or six years on the basis of more normal kind of growth rates. So the economy has been growing at four, five, six percent the last few years, depending on how you, you know, what, what you use to measure. But on any criteria, growth has been really rapid. And, you know, even if we do well over the next few years, growth is going to start. OK, next year is probably going to be good. But the year afterwards, growth could be back, you know, around three, four percent. The longer term forecasts are three percent. Uh, even if we avoid any big shock, that's going to mean a bit less cash to spend. We're looking at debt on one side. We're looking at a need to invest on the other side. We've plenty of assets at the moment, but there is a need for some kind of strategy, I think, to 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 look through that. And as you say, look at the assets that we have got. In terms of the banks, I can't really see a huge political downside for the government because were they to sell off a bit more of AIB at the moment? Well, the downside is surely that you could sell at a price that in a year's time oh, absolutely. Looks like a fool. But at the same time, if you were to sell off, say, another 10% of AIB, get it down to 60, you're still going to hold 61%. So the value of your remaining holding is still, is still going to be high. You will have cashed in and taken a bit of the risk off the table. So, you know, unless you believe that AIB share price is going to soar through the roof, uh, and there are, you know, going to be risks to the bank share prices over the next year or so, because if there is a disorderly Brexit, you know, the profit centres for Irish banks are Ireland and the UK, and they're the two economies that are going to be hit. Mm. So maybe no harm to uh, take a bit of risk off the table there. Owen, are you comforted by uh, Pascal Donoghue's comments, uh, which he's made on a number of occasions now, that he's going to focus the his measures, uh, his budgetary measures on lowering the tax burden for middle income earners and essentially uh, he's not going to do anything too quickly and he's going to make sure that anything he does do is appropriate for the budgetary cycle and doesn't risk overheating the economy. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's a valid concern uh, that people have that, you know, as I said, the, the economy has been going gangbusters for the last few years. It certainly doesn't need uh, any fiscal stimulus to uh, support that further, not at this stage. If Brexit turns out to be worse than expected or if Trump uh, trade policies turned out to have a bigger impact, maybe then there will be justification for some serious fiscal stimulus. But at the moment, there isn't. Uh, I think it's fair and appropriate that some personal tax levels could be looked at in terms of reducing them. I know, obviously, all of us uh, have taken a large hit uh, in terms of increased taxation uh, over the last decade as a result of the crisis. Um, businesses have, for the most part, avoided most of those measures because they obviously has been uh, trying to encourage business expansion and trying to encourage employment. Uh, but as you know, the labour market's now uh, you know, very, very strong. We have unemployment at 5.1%. We're probably getting to a stage where we're close to full employment. Uh, we know wage increases starting to feed through. Um, certainly businesses probably don't need too much support, again, absent uh, Brexit or, or, or US trade policy risks. So, it does make sense if there's a little bit of leeway um, to let personal tax uh, start to decrease a little bit, but not too fast because the outlook is uncertain. Um, and we do obviously have that large amount of debt. Running a uh, small budget surplus for a few years wouldn't be a bad idea uh, in that context. Um, so it needs to be that balance. Mm-hmm. you know. And obviously we also we have to be mindful of uh, EU fiscal rules, which obviously do dictate a lot of what Pascal uh, Dunhu can or can't do. Uh, with any of the the fiscal space, as uh, as we keep uh, describing it uh, over the coming years, mm. so now mind you, there are retailers out there who uh, claim to have been. I mean, there's a cost of business report coming out from uh, an Oireachtas committee, and um, they're claiming that they're you know being screwed uh, in terms of. Uh, business rates, commercial rates being charged by the local authorities and also in terms of insurance costs. But anyway, that's probably for another podcast. Owen, can I ask you about Brexit and uh, what's happened over the past uh, week or so? We had that uh, announcement by Theresa May um, of, you know, the line that they were going to take following the Chequers meeting. And it seemed to be heading towards soft Brexit. And then we had Derek Davis and uh, Derek Davis. We had David Davis. <laughs> and Davis probably do a better job. <laughs> he probably would. We had David Davis and uh, Boris Johnson. Uh, resigned from the cabinet and we had a couple of other resignations as well. So Theresa May certainly feeling the heat at the minute. Are we heading for a soft or hard Brexit in your opinion? Uh, I think we're closer to a soft Brexit outcome than we probably perceived maybe you know a week ago. Uh, I think it's a positive outcome uh, that come from the Chequers uh, report, the Chequers agreement, uh, insofar as it does point uh the direction of, of the UK negotiating stance towards a, a soft Brexit. But we're not there yet. As you said, there's a lot of infighting within the mm. Tory party. Uh, the white paper has still not been published. Could easily change in the meantime. Um, and uh, obviously, there's there's still a, a risk that the EU may not be happy with it. They may uh, not. They may feel that the, the four freedoms uh, are being imperiled uh, by, the, by the white paper and that they still can't accept it. But it does seem to bring us a little bit closer to some sort of agreement being able to be formed uh, in the coming months. Uh, should the Tory party hold together and should Theresa May's stance hold together uh, and that's obviously positive for the Irish economy uh, and positive for the markets uh, in, in that regard but there is still a big risk there uh, and Brexit still remains uh, a big uncertainty because we don't know how exactly it's going to evolve um, and I think all we've really seen over the last two weeks is where the hard Brexit ideology had to meet a bit of reality um, and, and reality thankfully uh, has won out on this little mini battle. Um, so the, far. But so far, exactly. But the war still goes on. Um, and until we get to March 29th uh, next year, until Brexit actually occurs, uh, and until we know exactly how it's going to occur, um, those risks will still be out there. And, you know, the, the Irish government, the Irish banks, Irish businesses, they're all going to be faced with the challenge of managing those risks. Yeah. Cliff, a lot of Irish people are really scratching their heads trying to figure out what Brexit means, uh, what it means for the UK and what it means yeah, for yeah, Ireland yeah. as well. Can you shed any light? Uh, wish, I wish I could, Kieran. Uh I think the range of possible outcomes are still enormous. And, and 
you know, as Owen said, a few months out, um, you know, nine months out from the UK's actual departure and, and two years after the referendum, that's extraordinary. Um, it is good news that the UK is moving towards a softer Brexit and that some of the hard Brexit madness appears to have been fought off for the moment. Uh, but the problem is that the white paper, which is due to come out tomorrow, uh, is still going to present a picture which the EU side are not going to like in a lot of respects. And the question is whether there's enough middle ground there to allow negotiations to start. Uh, and the add-on issue is you know, whether the UK is prepared to go far enough in terms of the Irish border and giving assurances on the Irish border in a legal form to allow discussions to, to get underway. So we, we've two hurdles to jump, if you like. Um, so I think the next thing to watch is, OK, we'll have the white paper tomorrow. We kind of roughly know the shape of that, assuming it's not going to change from the Checker statement and, and who knows. But the next thing to watch is the EU reaction. I th- and I think that's going to be very important because the, the more hardline elements in the EU will, as Owen said, say this is this is trampling over a number of our red lines. We can't negotiate on this basis. We need to tell Britain to go away. Some of the cooler heads maybe are saying, look, we need to we need to engage in talks here. There may be scope for compromise. The UK have put something forward. Uh, I think we need to see which side of the EU wins out, uh, whether a withdrawal agreement can be cobbled together, uh, and crucially from an Irish point of view, whether the transition period, which is a kind of a standstill, can come into play next March. If that, if those two things happen, the withdrawal is finalised and the transition agreement comes in, then we've got a bit of leeway to try and work things out. Still very difficult to see where the middle ground is, but at least that removes the... Uh, the risk of something really kind of cataclysmic happening next March and all the things about will planes be able to fly, will pharmaceuticals mm. be able to cross the English Channel, etc., etc. OK, finally, Owen, uh, just given all of this uncertainty around Brexit, around uh, Trump and his tariffs, uh, we could potentially have a, uh, an, a general election in Ireland uh, at some point over the next sort of six to nine months. Are you positive or negative on the future of the Irish economy? Um, I think positive on, on uh, certainly or somewhere in between. So, uh, I don't know. To be honest, we are uh, pretty positive on on the future for the Irish economy. I think the fundamentals are very strong. Uh, most of the growth we've seen over the last, you know, five or six years has not been credit fueled. Um, I know the central bank is being a little concerned about overheating in certain parts of the economy, but uh, fundamentals would seem to support most of the progress we've seen so far. Obviously, we're a small open economy. We're very much uh, at the mercy of external events, and there's not a huge amount we can do about that uh, until they happen, and then we can see if a fiscal stimulus, for instance, could be could be used. And that's why having the fiscal situation in as healthy a position as possible at that stage gives Pascal Dunner who or whoever is the finance minister at that stage the most flexibility to react to it. Obviously, as you said, there could be an election in Ireland uh, at some stage the next six months, 12 months. Um, and I don't think it's going to change the outlook all that much. Uh, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, one of those two parties will be the lead party. I suppose the only question now is, do Sinn Féin start to come more into the mix? And obviously we have seen some moves uh, to bring them in. And then what sort of policies will they seek to bring with them? Uh, will they be, you know, uh, all about public expenditure? Will they be about raising, you know, uh, increasing debt and things like that? Would that imperil the fiscal situation a bit more? That would be the only concern I'd have from that perspective. And, and I'm not trying to come out down one side or the other on the political uh, spectrum. But obviously we have seen a lot of populist policies uh, suggested or brought into 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 formation uh, across some parts of Europe uh, and that's the only thing I wouldn't want to see happen in Ireland I think some additional fiscal expenditure or tax cuts uh, certainly could be justified um, depending how, how they're formed um, uh, so, so I would see leeway for that so I think an agreement whoever ends up being a government 
it could be quite a pro-economic and also, you know, quite conservative stance and, and one that the mm. markets would, would, you, would like. You'd be talking to international investors quite yeah. regularly, I'm sure. I mean, what are they saying about Ireland? Are they concerned? Uh, are they uh, concerned, for, for example, if there is a general election that things might turn? I, I think they're always concerned about political uncertainty. Uh, I don't think they're hugely concerned about what the outcome will be. It's simply you always get that little vacuum uh, in between where, where you don't know. I think that's the only thing. I think they're, they're more concerned with, you know, when there is uh, involvement by the government uh, in parts of the economy where maybe it's not required, like in the banking sector, like in terms of how they've dealt with vulture funds and uh, NPL sales, that concerns a bit more because that's much more uncertain and much more difficult for them to forecast. Forecasting a budget, forecasting a fiscal or public policy stance on, on, on public expenditure is probably a little bit easier to understand than there. Once it's laid out, then you can factor into into models over the coming years. I don't think people have a huge issue with that. Uh, I think it's more this kind of political, populist-led involvement in minor parts of the or micro parts of the economy, which, sure. which investors get more concerned about. Yeah. Okay, gentlemen, we'll leave it there. Uh, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Peter Hamilton, Barry O'Halloran, Cliff Taylor and Owen Callan. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with Declan Conlon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. 